The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to the Three Down Nation podcast. I'm Justin Dunk, joined by John Hodge and J.C. Abbott. Today, we're discussing CFL head coaches who could be on the hot seat. The league's television ratings getting a 15% bump in week three. The struggle of the Calgary Stampeders. A pair of young quarterbacks set to make their first career starts in Canada. And the Montreal Alouettes unveiling new alternate uniforms. But first... The BC Lions put forth a signature performance in week three, doing something no team had done in almost four, count them, four years. Dominate the Winnipeg Blue Bombers at home at IG Field. John Hodge was there live in person. Zach Caleros was sacked seven times while Vernon Adams Jr. played virtually mistake-free football en route to a 30-6 romp. Do you blame the Bombers for the bad loss or praise the Lions for imposing their will? Well, obviously the Lions deserve credit here. They made my pick from last week of Winnipeg minus seven look awfully foolish, and they were simply sensational. They're 3-0 and for a reason, but I also know that JC is going to sing the praises of that team, so I'll focus on the home side because I do think that Winnipeg deserves a lot of blame here. This is a veteran-laden team, a savvy team. Zach Kolaris has talked about this, about how they already at week one had things in their offense that a lot of teams wouldn't have until week six or week seven. This is a win-now team. This is a team that is the oldest, most experienced in the league, and they looked every bit of it in the first two weeks. But guess what, boys? It's a fine line between looking veteran-laden and experienced and looking plain old and slow. And that is exactly what this team looked like at IG field this past week. This team looked sluggish. Their offensive line looked abysmal, which is, is shocking because that O line was arguably the best in the league through the first two weeks of the season and has been arguably the best in the league for many years. Now I spoke with Patrick Newfelt post game. He gave the lions credit for having a perfect game plan against what the Blue Bombers do best. And to me, that is the most shocking part of this game. I think everybody expected the Lions to come out and play at least relatively well. Nobody expected the Bombers to come out and have what they've since described as a horror movie-like performance. I don't know if you guys like horror movies, but they generally don't end well for the person who is on the receiving end of whatever the horrifying thing is. And the BC Lions were horrifyingly good on Thursday. And Winnipeg got taken to the slaughter. I half expected the Winnipeg Police Service to come out after the game with that orange evidence do not, caution do not cross tape and tape up the field. It was that much of a beatdown. And, and that is what is shocking for a team that, that everybody picked as the number one team in the league coming into this season. That Patrick Newfeld quote, a perfect game plan. That's what stands out to me. And that's exactly what BC defensive coordinator Ryan Phillips 
put out there against the Bombers on Thursday. The way that they executed from all levels of the defense, but especially on that defensive line, putting together seven sacks, pinning Zach Caleros in the pocket, setting the edge with the perfect combination of blitzes and four-man pressure and three-man pressure, mixing it up at, at just the perfect rate to confuse and confound one of the best quarterbacks in the league. It was a masterful display. And Phillips, I think we need to talk about him more as one of the best young coaches in the league and a potential head coach candidate coming up here this offseason. We've been uh, giving out awards every week for the top coach in the league, uh, a coordinator or a position coach who had a particularly uh, good performance. Phillips has won it all three weeks, guys, every single week. And, and the thing that is remarkable about that is each performance by his defense has gotten better. That first week against Calgary, you pick him because, yeah, it was it was the best performance in the league, but you didn't necessarily think it was overwhelming by any stretch of the imagination. Then he goes and shuts out the Edmonton Elks, and you go, okay, well, we have to pick him again because the man pitched a shutout in a league where that doesn't happen very often, and his franchise hasn't done it in 47 years. Even if the opponent's bad, surely we must pick him again. And then he goes up against the Bombers, and has this perfect game plan, makes his former teammate Buck Pierce, the offensive coordinator for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, look absolutely foolish with what he put on the field. It's really the first time that Phillips has come out on top of that matchup. Last season, Buck Pierce and that Winnipeg offense had their way with BC anytime they faced each other. But this was a changing of the tide. And Phillips, to me, has done a remarkable job with a BC defense that has gotten methodically better over the last number of years without making a whole lot of splashy moves. Zach Kolaris, let me correct you there, young buck, is not one of the best quarterbacks in the league. He's the best quarterback in the league two years running, and I still think he is that QB1 overall in the league. And Matthew Betts did his best to slow him down, sacking him three times out of the seven that the Lions got Caleros down to the turf in the game. And Betts was outstanding in this affair for the BC Lions, along with that defense you talked about with Ryan Phillips. And I think on the offensive side of the ball, Vernon Adams Jr. deserves credit because he has shown through three games, and yes, it's only three games, we need a bigger sample size, that he can play virtually mistake-free football and make a lot of smart decisions and step up at a time when his team needs a big play down the field. That touchdown throw to Justin McInnes in the second half to me really stood out because I think it put the proverbial nail in the coffin for any potential Winnipeg comeback. Now, I don't think that this loss is as terrible for the Blue Bombers because they have shown in the past that they can bounce back from these things, as Hodge has alluded to. It was more a case to me of the Lions up front winning a lot of one-on-one battles and also taking advantage of some of the scheme that Phillips had dialed up as well. So I think the Bombers can bounce back. I don't think they're over the hill yet in terms of their veteran experience, either helping them or hurting them or getting too much up there in age. I think this is one game they'll bounce back. They talked about taking it personal this week and they have won two of the last three Grey Cups and been to the last three Grey Cups for a reason because of their mentality. So I think this will only fuel them. I would not want to be the Alouettes standing in their way this week. 
Well, and we need to talk about exactly that. It's an 18-game regular season, and I think every team is entitled to at least one abysmal performance. And people quickly forget that the Bombers gave up five touchdown passes to Dane Evans last season in a huge <laughs> loss in Steeltown. And then everybody immediately forgot about it because they bounced back. Now, the issue for Winnipeg is they essentially had the West Division secured last season when that loss happened. And right now, they're tied for second place with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders at 2-1. and one. So clearly this team needs to come and have a good performance in Week 4 and prove to the, the to everybody watching, the fans, the pundits, the media, everybody, that Week 3 was the anomaly, not the rule. But you mentioned it, Dunk. Vernon Adams Jr., credit to him. I think we've all underrated him to at least some extent. To me, the thing that was most impressive about that performance from him was the situational football They got the ball at the very end of the first half. The Bombers weren't able to kill the clock. They punched it in for a touchdown on a very impressive quick drive. They needed one play to capitalize off the turnover that followed the Nick Dembski bobbled interception in the second half. And then every time they got backed up and BC was in the shadow of their own goalpost, they didn't necessarily put together a scoring drive, but they did enough to get out of the shadow of their own goalposts and force the Bombers to actually move the football. So to me, very impressive from him. I'm excited to see that matchup we're going to talk about later in the show. BC Toronto this week, a matchup that a couple years ago would have been just about the least sexy thing you could imagine. All of a sudden, that's that's a good matchup. I'm really excited to see that go down at BMO Field. Let's not forget either that VA has been doing this without two of his best receivers in the lineup. Keon Hatcher, thousand yard guy a year ago, has not played yet this year because of plantar fasciitis. And Dominic Rimes, who I think is the best receiver in the league, period, was also out with injury last week because of a foot issue. So he's missing 2,000-yard targets in that game, and he still puts forth that type of performance. The BC offense keeps clicking with guys like Aiden Eberhardt, Alexander Hollins, and Justin McKinnis in the lineup stepping up. It's a real testament to this BC team. And there's nobody out here saying, where is Nathan Rourke? And we need this guy back here in a hot minute. And I think that's a testament to Vernon Adams Jr. Silencing the doubters through three weeks. I think there's no doubt that Nathan Rourke is the better quarterback, but he was not able to get by the Winnipeg Blue Bombers last season. Part of that, I think, was due to the Bombers rolling on offense and the defense not being able to play as well as the Lions defense did at IG Field. But Vernon Adams Jr., for now has silenced his haters. The Edmonton Elks and Hamilton Tiger Cats are both off to miserable 0-3 starts this season. Chris Jones seemed genuinely shocked by his team's 0-1 start, stating that he would have lost his house betting against the Green and Gold record being what it is. There's a lot of cash in that house. That that would be a problem. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Tie Cats got pasted in their home opener, 38-12 by the Owls, which saw strong side linebacker Chris Edwards fake a handshake and then shove Owls receiver Austin Mack to the ground after the final whistle. Head coach Orlando Steinauer said, quote, that's not who we are, close quote, postgame after the incident. Which team should be more concerned about their start and which head coach should be more concerned about their job? Boy, oh boy, this is the most pathetic two-horse race I've ever seen in my life. How am I supposed to pick one or the other? Both. Now, I'll go with the Hamilton Tiger Cats here, and I'll tell you why. Uh, This is a team that had much higher expectations 
than the Edmonton Elks going into the season. They went out and got Bo Levi Mitchell. They paid a bunch of money to some top free agents. They're hosting the Grey Cup. And let's not forget, this is also a team with the longest active Grey Cup drought in the league. This was a pivotal year for this franchise. And the early results have not just not been good. They've been utterly terrible. This looks like a team without any redeeming features. Not only did Bo Levi Mitchell struggle in his two games before injury, the offense without him didn't look very good last week, and the defense has not delivered either. They went too young in the secondary and have really struggled because of it. And that all comes down to the decision-making of Orlando Steinhauer. He came into the league as a head coach, had that 15-3 and season in 2019, put out some really good tape and everyone was singing his praises. But now that he's also the president of football operations, some of the choices he's made, and we talked about it ad nauseum last year with the decision to go with Dane Evans, that was a mistake. And it appears like replacing him with Bo Levi Mitchell could also be a mistake as well. The team has gotten worse every single year of his tenure, and they appear pretty close to rock bottom, in my opinion, right now. It's important to note when you're talking about the Tiger Cats that some of the big money decisions that are made are not just Orlando Steinhauer's. And I'm not trying to get him off the hot seat here because I do believe he deserves some of the blame here for a second straight 0-3 start. You look at his records since coming in there. You mentioned it, 2019, 15-3, and 2021, 8-6, 2023-8-10, and now 0-3. It's not a good look, but... When you're talking about the big money decisions, as I alluded to, Scott Mitchell, the CEO, who has kind of tried to remove himself in a way by naming Matt Affnick the president and making it at least appear like he's not making these decisions, he actually has a major hand in them. He had a major hand in signing some of these quarterbacks who are on the back nine over the years in Hamilton, Casey Printers, Jason Moss, Henry Burris, and now... Bo Levi Mitchell, I think, all fit into a similar category. So I think some of the blame needs to go towards Mitchell there as well because when it comes to the big money decisions, he's right there and, in fact, sometimes even negotiating those deals. So I think that's important to note here as well that it's not necessarily always the way Orlando Steinauer would have gone in terms of some of these decisions were made. For example... I'm sure if Orlando Steinauer could have had his way, even though he's buddies with Scott Milanovic and they coached together with the Argos way back, that he wouldn't necessarily have his successor sitting down there in Florida, not around the team, waiting to come up and take over if it continues to get worse there. So I think that's part of the reason why, JC, you have Steinauer as his seat. What was it? Scalding? Scalding, Yes scalding hot on your rankings of which CFL coaches have the hottest seat of all. And I think it's warranted because of the expectations of the team hosting the Grey Cup. We all know Bob Young would love nothing more than to end this Grey Cup drought and do it in Hamilton. But it has been an absolutely terrible start to the season for Hamilton. And if you're talking about the Edmonton Elks, the expectations just weren't there for them to even honestly be competitive in the West Division, let alone talking about getting out of there for the Grey Cup. Now, if you look at the odds on 3downnation.com, the Elks now have the longest shot by a long shot. Like their odds are super long to get to the Grey Cup. And I think that's warranted. But 
in actuality, I think when you're talking about the disappointment of a season, it is by far through three weeks, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Yeah, I'm not sure how you fire Chris Jones if you're the Edmonton Elks, only because everyone on that coaching staff is beholden to Chris Jones and is extremely close to Chris Jones as a person. And removing that figurehead who has multiple jobs, by the way, not just the head coach. He's technically the GM. He's also technically the defensive coordinator running that that unit. I don't know how from a personal standpoint, just on a personal level, how you expect his best friends essentially to take over the team in his absence. And then secondly, I don't know who else you look at on their coaching staff as someone who it's like, okay, this is the person who's obviously a far more competent option to be the head coach. I'm not suggesting they don't have competent assistants. What I'm saying is nobody on that team as an assistant has been anywhere close to a head coaching position previously. And I would certainly not put them as a candidate who is stronger for that role than Chris Jones. Now, as Justin has reported, Chris Jones is not on a four-year contract. He is on a series of one-year contracts. So after this season, it's very easy, I think, to make a coaching change mid-season for the reasons I've said. I don't think it makes any sense. I think this is Chris Jones's team for the year, even though his seat is, I think, Jason, you said boiling? Boiling was the language I used for that one. <laughs> I mean, scalding, Ooh. boiling. Yeah, I, I will Half say. A one, six the other. The scientists out there will point out that boiling temperature is relative. So if his seat were to boil, that would be infinitely higher than the temperature required to boil water, which would then make it hotter than scalding. That thought did cross my mind as I read the article, mm. but that's aside. We'll have to apologize to the to the physicists and chemists who are listening to the show. Uh, but in the meantime, I do want to address what Orlando Steinauer said after the game when he said, that's not who we are. Um, newsflash. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What your players do and what your team does on the field represents your organization. Talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. And when you go out and you sign a guy like Duke Williams, who's throwing helmets and you sign a guy like Chris Edwards, who's fist fighting fans, you cannot then be surprised when they come to your organization and do foolish things. And I will say this. Last season, we saw the king of stupid crap in the CFL in a guy like the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, Garrett Marino, absolutely upend that season for that team by the stupid crap that he did on the field. I'm not suggesting the Ticats are there right now, but the thought has occurred to me that this can snowball in a hurry. Because let's not forget, the Riders were 4-1 last season out of the gate. They looked like a potential team to play in the Great Cup at home, as it was in Regina last season. This year, the Ticats are off to a bad start, and now they've got nonsense happening on the field. And it's not right to stand back there and say, well, that's not who we are. Yes, it is, Mr. Steinauer, and it's your job to fix it. And the issue there is what people don't see is the divisions that that sort of behavior can create in the locker room. Because whether you talk about it or not and say Duke Williams is going to come and be a good boy in Hamilton, as Hodge has said flatly, and I agree, he's not. And Chris Edwards will not be. So you start having those cliques created. And those are the teams 
that do not win. There are no cliques in Winnipeg. I do believe, based on all I've heard about their locker room, it is a cohesive group that actually holds each other accountable. And I don't believe that is the case in Hamilton. And also, it should be mentioned, fellas, that bringing in Bo Levi Mitchell, and I understand he's trying to approach it like a totally new franchise and earn the respect of his teammates, but it's a massive ego to come into that locker room. So not only do you have Duke Williams and Chris Edwards doing their things, whether we see it or not in terms of how they treat their teammates and how they treat their opponents, quite frankly, but you have that ego of Bo Levi Mitchell coming in there and an evolving locker room that Orlando Steinauer used to, and I mean those words, used to, hold sacred. And this is what I'm talking about in terms of some of the big money decisions that happen above his head with Scott Mitchell. Those decisions get made that maybe Steinauer wouldn't want to do, but it's very hard to push back against the guy that hired you as a head coach, praised you, then gave you a promotion, and is a guy that could easily fire you right now after your second straight 0-3 start. So I think that's one of the issues plaguing the Tiger Cats right now. It's not that cohesive, family-like team atmosphere that the Tiger Cats had for much of the time that Zach Caleros was there when they went to the Grey Cup back-to-back years in 2013 and 2014 and were the class of the East Division, I would say, all the way through that 2019 season. So I think that is a massive issue here is the locker room. There's a lot of new faces there and we can talk about the football aspect of it, but you guys both know from working with various teams and playing the game that it's got to be a group that gets along. And I can tell you from my experience at the university of Guelph that our best seasons came when it was a cohesive group that had respect for each other. Not that was one that was made up of a bunch of clicks. Guys, I I think this is a three-down podcast first. We were given the choice to talk about Chris Jones or somebody else, and we're not talking about Chris Jones. (laughs) This has never happened before in the history of three-down nation. I I think that's a testament to what's going on in Hamilton, but we would be remiss if we didn't touch on Jones a little bit more. And I think the reality is – why everyone is looking at Hamilton as more of a disappointment is the stupid crap in Edmonton isn't off the field behavior right now. It's their quarterback room because the decisions made there certainly very questionable to go in without a real insurance policy behind Taylor Cornelius, who was not proven in any way whatsoever. And now potentially moving on to Jarrett Deggie, a 25 year old rookie skipping over Trey Ford for some reason. You'll have to explain that one to me, gentlemen. But really, Jones has improved this team this year. The defense looks like it it's a better unit than last year. There's some talent there finally. All the pieces are in place for this rebuild to start to kick off, except the quarterback. And until they find that, Edmonton's going to be in trouble But at the same time, when you know you're one piece away, it's hard to entirely place it on Jones, even though he's the one making the decisions at that position. Does Dylan Mitchell have positive receiving yards yet? Finally. I I think he he had like a five-yard catch last week, so he probably has one yard. 
Yeah, it's, if only it's, there was it's, an easy way to look that up real quick. Yeah, we we still don't have that. Uh, I I think moving forward until the league stats get worked out, I'm just going to put the word allegedly along with any statistic in my copy. <laughs> Zach Kolaris allegedly threw for 275 yards. It's getting ridiculous. But hey, Randy Ambrosi said this past week was going to be reasonably good, and apparently that's the standard that the CFL league office is shooting for when it comes to their statistics. Which, by the way, all right, boys, it, I know that it did not the stats thing is not in the rundown, but. Let's get into it real quick, okay? This is completely bogus. It makes the league look like something they hate being called Bush League. And it's so easily fixable. I was told that this process was started in March 2022, boys. And that the last time the CFL underwent a change to their statistics system, guess what they did? They did Exactly the thing that Randy Ambrosi and his crew over there decided not to do this time. They ran that system in parallel or whatever verbiage you want to use to describe it with the new system they were implementing to make sure that there were no errors in the statistics. And guys, arguably the worst thing about this is right now the statistics are not being scraped from big major websites like TSN, like Sportsnet, like the score. And that means that they're not being readily picked up for potential betters that the CFL is trying to make money from. So this is a complete and utter failure. I will also add, and and to take people behind the curtain a little bit, obviously it's incredibly important from a journalistic ethics standpoint to have correct information and in reporting. After this past week's game, which was preceded, by the way, by Randy Ambrosi addressing the media and saying that the statistics would be reasonably good for week three, I was left with the media and literally on the internal CFL Connect system to which the media has access and does have live statistics, the general public does not yet, every minute or two. You can refresh, and the statistics have changed. So if post-game you put in your copy that Vernon Adams Jr. had 306 passing yards, you refresh, and a moment later, it's 291. And then a few minutes later, you refresh again, and it's 308. And that causes huge problems for publications that are trying to match the journalistic standards that have been set henceforth decades in advance so that readers trust what they are reading on these publications. So you can imagine the level of frustration in the press box. Obviously, fans are very frustrated for the reasons that you highlighted, Dunk, and it is completely unacceptable. Then um, this is, a, by the way, another instance to touch on the Steinauer situation from a moment ago. Somebody who is just saying things to say things when Randy Ambrose says, this is not a failure. Uh, yeah, yes, it is, Mr. Abrosi. You can argue against it. You can say whatever you want about it, but you cannot have an abject failure and then just with words say, no, it's not, and dismiss it. That's not how life works. This is a failure. Own it and fix it, please. Your fans are begging you. The media is begging you. Get it fixed. Every other pro league has this and has for the last 25 years. Please fix it. We are just tired of it. We're tired of the bogus commentary. We're tired of the excuses, right? 
he comes out and says things like, well, we're going to have a chip in the football, and that's why. What does that have to do with anything? How does a chip in the football prevent you from having accurate tackle stats through the first three (laughs) weeks of the season? Like, is everyone in your stats department currently trying to make the chip from scratch? Like, I don't understand how that has anything to do with anything. Right now, we have worse stats in the CFL than in some European football leagues. I can say that as a guy who has watched way too much of that over the last couple of years. That is an utter embarrassment for the league. Ambrosi did note that Sorry, I'll go real quick, Ajahn, then you go. Genius Sports apparently has now put their top technician or, I guess, data person on this. That wasn't the case before. So you have this group, this company, Genius Sports, that now has a stake in the CFL Ventures, and they don't have their top person on this throughout. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Go, Ajahn. I was just going to say, and... and the press conference that Ambrosi did, he was asked several times about stats and I'll credit Darren bombing who asked at the end of the press conference, an excellent question, which was like, you know, we've talked a lot about stats. Could you just tell us like, like, cause the league could have operated the old stats system while getting the new stats system up and running and said, is it a resource issue? And Ambrosi said, no, it's not a resource issue at all. And then he explained that the limitation for the league is that they don't have enough stats people to run both systems. And a lot of stadiums across the country don't have room for two stats crews, which objectively is a resource issue. So please don't say that it's not a resource issue. And then in your answer, outline how it is exactly a resource issue, which, again, is another example of quite literally talking out both sides of your mouth. And I found that quite frustrating uh though randy did give me a nice pat on the arm when the presser was done so so that was nice at least but even that excuse is bogus the cfl has done this before they have implemented a new stats system they didn't need two stats crews like he was talking about or extra space god knows that there is lots of space in press boxes because of the state of that industry but they've done this before like, don't act like this is a completely new thing. They've done this successfully before, which is why this time around, it's a failure. Sorry, I'll shut up now. <laughs> we'll move on now. The CFL on TSN and RDS had its best television ratings week so far this season, increasing over 15% from week two. Saskatchewan and Calgary drew the highest rated game of the week with an average audience of 636,700, while Montreal and Hamilton drew 516,000 viewers on English and French language television combined. Is this a positive sign for the league? Yes, it is. And thanks to John Hodge, you can certify that these numbers are correct. (laughs) You don't have to keep refreshing. They're not going to change. appreciate my man, Mr. Hodge, going over these numbers, but it definitely is. The numbers have trended up over the first three weeks, and Ambrosi in that press conference that Hodge has alluded to a couple times now in Winnipeg before the Lions put it on the Blue Bombers talked about this experiment with Sunday night football primetime games in the summer, and it seems like the league is kind of just throwing stuff against the wall and trying to see what sticks, but The Sunday night game in week three was up over 400,000 viewers. And I think that's a positive because the week before it was less than 300,000. And in week one, you had the Rough Riders bump, which is always difficult to tell anything because, you know, no matter the date and time, 
that Rough Riders fans are going to tune in. It was over 500,000 that first week against Edmonton. So it is a positive sign, and it does seem like there are fans out there who like the idea of having one game on four different nights of the week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And perhaps the CFL, for once in a while, can stick to something so fans know when the games are on. I know we had a big chat in our Three Down Nation, Three Down Nation WhatsApp chat group going on about this, and I'll let you guys explore this a little more. But I think there's something to be said for that, that people want to know when the games are on. So my question to the league would be, you're trying to focus on these Sunday night primetime games now as an experiment. And there's no Sunday night game this week. And it easily could have been the BC Lions against the Toronto Argonauts who are playing on Monday night. Granted, that's a holiday and I can understand that. But if you're trying to create cohesiveness and people knowing when the games are, why not have that game on the Sunday night? We looked at the schedule for Toronto FC. They actually play on the Tuesday night at home, the night after the Argos play there. So I think even... The soccer people would have appreciated at least one day in between games to perhaps patch up the field a little bit from the Lions and Argos running around on it on Monday night. So I think that game could have been played on Sunday night. Perhaps there's some venue issues, to be fair, that aren't there. But I think overall, week three is a definite positive for the league. Much the complete opposite compared to the stats issue the league has right now. And the Thursday ratings were also impressive to me. You laid out the Sunday ratings, Doc, which is kind of the first good non-rider rating that Sunday has generated so far. But week one and two averaged about a quarter million people on the Thursday games. That rating doubled. And granted, it was BC-Winnipeg, which is a pretty good matchup. Obviously, the Bombers tend to draw well on TSN. But when you're getting half a million people tuning in on a Thursday night, to me, that is evidence for a non-rider game mind you that to me is good evidence that Thursday night football is working and it should be noted that first Thursday game between BC and Calgary which we talked about at length on the show two weeks ago did go up against the Stanley Cup finals which is obviously going to draw some eyeballs even if this year's matchup was about as far away from a Canadian matchup as one could possibly get so to me these ratings are encouraging it's evidence that Sunday football is working for the CFL it's evidence that Thursday football is working for the CFL I know as someone who works in the media, Thursday through Sunday football is fantastic. I love it and I adore it because we get four days worth of game content for C- or for, from the CFL for Three Down Nation. And we also get game previews, right? The post, it, it helps us spread out our content. So far from fans, this is obviously completely anecdotal. I'm seeing lots of positive feedback. But I will echo what, what Justin said. Ben Grant, our fabulous contributor out of Toronto, mentioned you know, I love having football on every night, but it's it's frustrating sometimes when the times change so much. That's something the NFL does extremely well. You don't even have to look at a schedule. You don't even have to have a brain. You just know 1 p.m. Eastern is kickoff, and then we're going to get more games after that, and then another game after that, right? And, and Monday night, there's going to be a game too. I think if the CFL can can keep the Thursday through Sunday thing going, but but regiment the start times a little bit better. I've also seen parents with little of little kids complain that some of the games start too late. Obviously, getting younger people watching the games who maybe have a bedtime, uh, or or I mean, I shouldn't judge. Older people have bedtime sometimes too. Yeah, we're going to earlier on. Exactly, a little bit earlier on might be a good thing. And and as as you mentioned as well, Dunk. Having not having a Sunday night game this week is very strange to me. This should have been a thing that happens consistently from week one until Labor Day, 
when the NFL season starts and you're not going to compete with their Sunday night game. So I, I, I'm mostly positive here. I just think this needs to be tweaked and honed a little bit more. It also be no- noted that Hodge, you are married and you have, you know, your wife to, to be at home with you for, for those of us still on the hunt for a significant partner, having a, a, a game every single night from Thursday through Sunday it's a little bit more challenging. So I'm not sure if I'm totally <laughs> a fan of the new schedule. I'd like to see some earlier kickoff times so I could dance the night away, perhaps. I don't think I do that very and much. And if you I are interested in dating anyway, J.C. So. Abbott, please email info <laughs> at 3 with a headshot and brief bio. And you, he might. I thought we didn't want any kind of those ads on the site anymore. Well, this is for one of our own, Dunk. It's a little different. It's a special exception. I will say this. One of the comments that Randy Ambrosi made in his press conference really took me aback. He said, young people are telling me that Thursday is the first Friday now. I want to know which young people are telling him that because I've never heard that before in my life. I don't Really, JC? Has anyone ever heard Thursday is the first Friday? This is yeah, dude. I, in Toronto, Thursday night is hot fire. Usually mm-hmm. Friday night, people are chilling and recover, and they go hard again on Saturday. So that's where that comes from. I'm just surprised okay. that Randy's hearing about it now. It just shows you how far behind the times the CFL is. Like this has been a thing for like a decade, at least, if not longer. Well, this might explain why I'm on the podcast begging for a, begging for a partner. <laughs> I didn't know this. I gotta get you out, get on you out on Thursday. Dance floor more, buddy. <laughs> I will say just to tag Hodge's point about Thursday night football and the games being spread out throughout the week. I think there are some old tested and true CFL fans that really like the Friday night doubleheader and Thursday hasn't been great. And Thursday I don't think is also the greatest night, depending who you are to especially get families out to a football game, right? Because there is bedtime and things like that. So you're probably not going to have young kids there. Not That's not necessarily what the CFL is going for and Ben Grant did make the point he does have children that he would like to see some afternoon games to be able to take his kids to games I think there was only a couple on the schedule that he mentioned and I think both of those were the Argos because he does live in the GTA so I think Sunday night looks like it does have an upward trend in the summer and I think they should stick to that make sure they have a game every Sunday night unlike they do in week four Thursday night, I think, could be examined a little deeper. And I realize that it could be tricky to always do doubleheaders on Friday or Saturday nights. And I think there is something to having a game on at primetime every night of the week. But I think Thursday needs to be looked into a little bit more versus having a doubleheader Friday or Saturday or perhaps even Sunday. I don't know how ideal that is to have a doubleheader on Sunday. I think it'd be Friday or Saturday. But I'm just looking at the scheduling perspective and also the athletes, right? Having games on four days sometimes creates short turnarounds for the players. Hodge, you asked CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi if the league is concerned about the Calgary Stampeders franchise. Predictably, he said no, but we know that's probably not the truth. He did admit that the organization has work to do. Why do you have concerns? Well, This started in April. I mean, it started with just, you know, casual observation of McMahon Stadium getting increasingly more and more empty over the last few seasons. Uh, We also have millions of data points from our own work at Three Down Nation and looking at which articles about which teams generate the most 
traffic for us. I'm not going to get into the details of that, but maybe, you know, our listeners can connect the dots a little bit from what I'm about to say. Jay McNeil, the team's new vice president of business operations, was on Ryan Ballantyne's show, our great Calgary, Calgary contributor, in April and said that the team's season ticket base, and for, for context, McNeil is new to the position. I believe the Stampeders created this position for him about a year ago. Their ticket base is down from 22,000 in 2015 to less than 15,000. In April, he set the goal of the team having a season ticket base of 15,700 for the 2023 season, which my sources indicate the team missed. Now, the team does have the same number, give or take, season ticket holders as it did last year, which at least means they've stopped the bleeding. But to me, this is cause for concern. The club had its lowest attended game in over 25 years for its home opener. The team last season was fifth in TV ratings, so that does not include French language ratings. Likely they were seventh. So far this year, they are seventh. And obviously the team is starting to struggle on the field, which has never happened before during the John Huffnagel era. They're off to one and two start. Yes, they've got a million injuries, but so far Jake Mayer in his quest to be the new face of the franchise there has simply not been it. One of the factors, of course, is the stadium. McMahon Stadium is decrepit. It's old. It needs to be replaced. But as of right now, there is no indication whatsoever that it will be replaced or significantly upgraded at any point in the future. And they keep pointing, and Randy Ambrosi did this as well, to the pandemic. And I just want to inform the citizens of Calgary that the pandemic was actually a global event that occurred everywhere <laughs> on the planet. It didn't merely happen within the confines of the city of Calgary. And right now, the Bombers and Riders combined $12 million profit last season. The Ticats, just last year, a minority share of the club reportedly sold for $20 million, which is fantastic. The Elks and Lions had over 30,000 people at their home openers. The Alouettes are seeing significant investment from their new owner, owner Pierre Caro Pelado, And the Argos, their home opener, yes, it was a little bit smaller than Calgary's home opener, but we all love to rag on the Toronto Argonauts in their empty stadium. Well, guess what? Their home opener had the best crowd they've seen in four years. And though they were hosting the Ticats, Ben Grant and a number of people who were at the game noted that there was a significantly less amount of black and yellow in the crowd than there usually is when Steeltown comes to town. So all of that is to say, I think it's time after years of banging on the three largest markets in the CFL and everybody bringing up that same narrative of, oh, well, Vancouver and Montreal and Toronto, we just got to figure that out and the CFL is going to be healthy. I say, let's recognize the progress that's being done elsewhere. And let's also recognize what I think, frankly, has gone underreported, which is the continued off-field struggles and decline of the Calgary Stampeders. Obviously, we want all nine teams to be in tip-top shape, and the only way to make that happen is to hold teams accountable. I am bullish on Jay McNeil as an executive. I think that organization needs improved leadership, to be quite frank, and I'm hopeful that he will be able to get the job done. But this is not going to be a one-year turnaround or even, dare I say, a three- to five-year turnaround. This is a long-term turnaround. And I sincerely hope that the Calgary Stampeders can recognize their off-field struggles and improve. You hit the nail right on the head with all your points, Hodge. There is no organization in the league right now that I am more concerned about than Calgary. I got 
a chance to go to that home opener. I was actually pleasantly surprised by that lowest attended game in 25 years because everyone in the press box was predicting 12, 13,000 in attendance instead of the 18,000 they got. That's how bad it is in Calgary and how people in that market are feeling, even though they seem to be rather quiet about it publicly. And it comes down to a number of factors, but also the game day experience. I mean, we saw multiple CFL teams pull out all the stops for their home openers. We had the Saskatchewan Rough Riders with Kim Mitchell. The BC Lions had LL Cool J. The Montreal Alouettes had Our Lady Peace. Calgary appears to be rolling out like a local off-key cover band for all their halftime performances, and it's just not good. It's actually getting ridiculed in the press box because the entertainment level is that bad. And and it's justified, right? They need to start investing in the entertainment aspect of the product. And frankly, I think there needs to be some serious uh, you know, introspection when it comes to the football side of things too, right? This is an organization – that we have come to think of as a dominant powerhouse because of how good they were in the 2010s. But that is not true anymore, right? This team has not had a playoff win since 2018 when they won the Grey Cup. They are 1-2 and two right now, and frankly, that might be kind. It doesn't look like Jake Mayer is the quarterback of the future anymore, even though they've invested in him. And not to take it back to my head coach's hot seat, piece but even with all those factors Dave Dickinson is is one of the safest coaches in the league because no one's going to touch him this is an organization that has no interest in upsetting the status quo in making any radical changes they're going to keep plodding along and yes it has been successful they keep making the playoffs but it's gotten worse gradually year after year much like their stadium and eventually this whole thing is going to crumble Hot tip, JC, do not mention the fact that the Stampeders have not won a playoff game since 2018 around John Huffnagel. (laughs) I will say that as much as there is talk about the stadium in Calgary, and yes, they need a new one, JC, you're hitting it dead on there. There needs to be some hype, some interest, some sexiness created around the game day atmosphere, right? Randy Ambrosi and some of the presidents around the league will talk about creating an area where the young people, quote, can gather in these stadiums. And even though Calgary's not going to get a new stadium anytime soon, I believe there are places to do it in McMahon Stadium. Like you could have an area right outside that one end zone opposite the scoreboard where people are close to the action and mingling and having a great time. But we haven't seen that for whatever reason. The status quo is exactly what has gone down with the St. Peters. And quite frankly, it needs to change. Like John Huffnagel, for example, was the only president present for on-field drills and activities at the CFL Combine. Like he's not the president of the team. It's very clear that it's Jay McNeil. And that the Stampeders, in a way here, are just trying to get Huffnagel money that doesn't go on the football operations cap. That's all fine, well, and good. But at some point, you have to move on, just like the Stampeders did with Bo Levi Mitchell. They have to move on from these old, tried and tested ways that worked for a while, but are not working anymore. Well, and we've seen that investment in a significant way 
in BC on a short span. We've seen it in Montreal, and we're starting to see signs of progress in Toronto. And that is why I asked Ambrosi this question, because there is lots of positive things help happening in the CFL outside of Calgary. I'm sick and tired of this lazy narrative of, well, the pandemic really hurt the Stampeders. I'm sorry. That is a load of crap as far as I'm concerned. And we need to get into a situation where the Calgary Stampeders, I mean, the Elks have not won a home game since, I mean, oh my God, October, 2019, they had 32,000 people at their home opener. Yes, they hosted the Riders, but guess what? The Stampeders hosted the Riders, and they got 25,000 people there this past week. That's still 7,000 fewer than the Elks had for their home opener. So to me, the Stampeders need to be held to account here. And, um, you know, you mentioned the Huffnagel thing, Dunk. Obviously, John Huffnagel is one of the best I mean, I'll say people in CFL history between what he did as a quarterback, what he did as a, a coordinator, a head coach, GM, sensational. Nothing but infinite respect for that. But you're exactly right. When the team has lacked innovation since he became president and the situation off the field has gotten more dire and he's allocating his time to the combine, that's not your job as a president. And so I do think that that needs to be said as well, if McNeil is the true president, I think it's clear he's going to get the president title in a few years as John Huffnagel inevitably retires. But the sooner that happens, at least in my opinion, the better for the Stampeders, a team that needs a lot of reinvigoration at this point. Adapt or die. That's the way it is in pro football. Right now, the Calgary Stampeders need to make their choice. Moving on to our picks for this week four of CFL action. The Edmonton Elks visit the Ottawa Red Blacks on Friday in what could be a battle of quarterbacks making their first career starts. Jared Daggy appears set to get the nod for Edmonton, while Tyree Adams will be under center for Ottawa. With the Red, Black, Red Blacks as three-and-a-half-point favorites, who you see winning this one? I'm out here singing, teach me how to diggy, teach me how to diggy, teach me how to diggy. That was awful, but that's who I'm rolling with in this game. I think the Elks have played better on defense. They've played arguably more quality opponents, even though they have an offer in the win column. So I'll roll with Jarrett, teach me how to diggy, and the Elks getting points on the road in the nation's capital. As much as I like Tyree Adams starting at quarterback, I'm going with Daggy. I will say this, as much as my bomber prediction last week was awful, I think I was the one who said that Jarrett Deggie was the best quarterback in Edmonton during the preseason, and evidently, Chris Jones was listening. So I'm taking the Elks, plus three and a half. If this was a pick I'd be tempted to take the Red Blacks, but no team that is on essentially their third-string quarterback and hasn't won a home game in two seasons should be getting three and a half points at home. I'm rolling with Edmonton. And boys, I thought it would be a controversial pick, but the Edmonton Elks are on the road. That means they can actually win this week, right? <laughs> <laughs> Two rookie quarterbacks, Jarrett Daggy going up against Baron Miles' defense is going to be a much easier test than Tyree Adams facing defensive guru Chris Jones. I'm taking the Elks here. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers are six-point favorites. Hodge, get out your cutlery and napkin for their game against the Montreal Alouettes on Saturday, despite coming off a disappointing loss to the BC Lions. The Owls are off to a surprising 2-0 start after dominating the Tiger Cats on the road in Week 3, though both of their wins have come against 
backup quarterbacks. Do you see the Bombers bouncing back to win in La Belle Provence, or are the Owls for reals? Well, I do think that the Alouettes are better than we gave them credit for. However, I do see the Winnipeg Blue Bombers bouncing back simply because I don't think the universe is ready for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers to go from being the class of the league, head and shoulders above everybody, to getting their butts whipped on a week-to-week basis. I've got the Bombers bouncing back. Those players have a very sour taste in their mouth, and I think the Alouettes, after a 2-0 start, maybe feeling a little bit fat and sassy, could be ripe for the picking here. Minus six on the road, I'm still taking Winnipeg, a team that, by the way, traditionally has also played very well in La Belle Provence. I've been wildly impressed with the Alouettes' start to the season. Austin Mack looks like a legitimate start receiver in that inexperienced offense. But I got to take Winnipeg here. This is a Mike O'Shea-led team. It's all about culture. You have to believe there's going to be a powerful response here. I think they cover this large spread. Oh, boys. This one, to me, is very tricky because you have the Bombers, again, being big favorites. But the Alouettes really haven't played anybody. They beat the Red Blacks in week one. That was Nick Arbuckle. They beat the Tiger Cats in week three. That was Matthew Schilt, although he played very well. Two of those teams are arguably the worst in the CFL right now. And we know the Blue Bombers have played against a higher level of competition. Yes, they got whooped by the Lions, but I don't think that game was as large of a disparity as the score indicated. They had an 18-point win over the Saskatchewan Rough Riders in week two. And in week one, it was off to a solid start. So I like the Bombers to win the game, but I just have a hard time laying this amount of points again because the stats would tell you it's difficult to do. So I'm going to do it, but I'm going to cover my eyes and pray to the heavens that Cody Fajardo continues to not turn over the football and Jason Moss runs the rock. And I think the Bombers win, but the Alouettes cover. The BC Lions are two-and-a-half-point road favorites for Monday night's game against the Toronto Argonauts in a battle of two unbeaten teams. Both clubs are coming off impressive victories this past week on the road. Who do you like and why? Well, we've talked about it already on this podcast. The Lions have looked great to start the season, and they're only going to look better this week. Now, a lot could change before Monday. We still have several days of practice, but the rumor is both Dominique Grimes and Keon Hatcher could be back in the lineup for the Lions against Toronto. That's 2,000-yard receivers and Rhymes, the best offensive weapon in the entire league, in my opinion. This Lions team is going to blow away this two-and-a-half-point spread. I'm picking them to win. This is a classic letdown spot, JC. Listen up because you can learn something here. The Lions coming off a massive win, looking like world beaters, getting an inflated line here. They shouldn't be this much of a favorite on the road against the defending champs who have looked great to start the season and went into a tricky spot there in Edmonton and covered a big number against the Elks. And yes, I know Edmonton hasn't won at home in a long time. That still is a difficult position to go in and do. So I like the Argos as underdogs at home. There's a veteran secondary there. I think they can get after Vernon Adams Jr. and pressure him more than he's been pressured season to date, especially with Flo or Malade, who is arguably 
the best pass rusher in the league right now. So I will take the double blue in those Cambridge blue uniforms getting points at home. With all due respect to Flo, Matthew Betts is over here with his hand up saying, moi, 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 because I think he's the best. That's, that's, that's one of the only French words I know, by the way. He's, though I, I'm practicing on Duolingo. I haven't made much progress yet. Uh, but he is somebody who I think is the best pass rusher of the CFL right now. Five sacks in three games was an absolute game record last week. To me, this game is one that right now at this line, I'm taking BC at minus two and a half. If the line moves at all, I would take the Toronto Argonauts. To me, the Toronto plus three or more is the buy. But if it's less than a field goal, I'm happy to eat that with the Lions on the road. The Lions have absolutely, despite their great start, no room to get complacent because the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are going to be right on their tail. This team needs to keep rattling off wins. So I'm taking the Lions here. But again, if that line moves an inch, I'm taking the Argos at, at plus three or more. On that note, it is time for Hodges' heritage moment. On this day in 1975, Lou Heyman was inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame. The native of New York City coached in Canada for 21 years, predominantly with the Toronto Argonauts, her head coach from 1932 to 1940, and the Montreal Alouettes from 46 to 54. Heyman made history in 1946 with the signing of Herb Trawick, who was officially the first black player in the history of Canadian professional football. Heyman later served as the general manager in Toronto from 1955 all the way until 1983, during which he hired Willie Wood, the first black head coach in CFL history in 1981. The most outstanding Canadian in the East Division is presented annually with the Lou Heyman Trophy. I know that this all occurred far before our memories reached, boys, but I know, JC, you take issue with Herb Trowick being named officially the first black player in CFL history. I have no issue with Trawick personally. He tremendous accomplishments, tremendous career, but it's just provably false. He wasn't the first black player in the history of Canadian professional football. We've uncovered at least five. There might be more at this stage players that predate him within the Canadian football landscape, including, you know, guys playing for the Calgary Stampeders who could have potentially caught the first forward pass in the history of Canadian football that was a black player you know the Saskatchewan Rough Riders had a black player in their first Grey Cup appearance many years before Herb Trowick came over he is certainly the first import black player in the big four but he's not the first black player in the history of Canadian professional football Let's go to the three-minute drill. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers signed Dakota Prukop following his release from the United States Football League and let go preseason sensation Tyrell Pigrom. Man, this guy's got to get picked up by somebody else. Does that move make sense for the Bombers? I think it does only insofar to show just how win-now this team is. Who has the better long-term upside? The answer is obviously Tyrell Pigrom. Evidently, the team does not care about that. They are focused on one thing and one thing only. That is the 110th Grey Cup, which is to be played in Hamilton in November. And Dakota Prukop is the player they feel can do a better job of getting them to that game and helping them win that game. So a very short-term view for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, for better or worse. The Saskatchewan Rough Riders made a net profit of $3.9 million in 2022, plus an additional $3.3 million in Grey Cup net revenue. Is that a strong number? 
it is a very strong number, especially considering how bad the Saskatchewan Rough Riders were last season. They're still making bank out there in the prairies. The Montreal Alouettes have new alternate uniforms, which are a throw throwback to the red look the team had in the 1940s. Personally, I think they look more Montreal Concords-esque, but that's just my opinion. Do you like the new digs, Dunk? I really do, but I just think we have too much red in the league already, and I know you guys have talked about this with the BC Lions going mostly black on their home uniforms, so I get it's an alternate, so it's okay, but I really do like these new unis, and whenever we do another new uniform ranking, I think they would be up there in terms of ranking with the other top unis in the league. The Calgary Stampeders have lost receiver Malik Henry to a ruptured Achilles tendon as he will miss the rest of the year. Is that a big blow to the Stamps passing game? It is. I mean, the Stampeders are already without Jalen Philpott and Reggie Bagleton. Yes, this team did a great job in the draft in 2023, picking up Clark Barnes and Cole Tucker. But absolutely, this is going to hurt a team that's already struggling to push the ball down the field and not rely on the short underneath stuff that Jake Mayer tends to go with. The Edmonton Elks are adding receiver Terry Vaughn to the team's wall of honor. Is he a worthy selection? One of the most worthy possible. This is a dynamic player. Want to hear a crazy stat, boys? His first 11 seasons in the league, he put up more than 1,000 yards in each of them. Back to back to back to back, 11 times, including six times with Edmonton. That is absolutely absurd. CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi believes developing the next generation of quarterbacks is, quote, front and center, close quote, for the league. How can the league go about developing more passers? It's really simple to me, and the league has taken one step in terms of having three quarterbacks that need to be dressed on game day, and they need to create some sort of a quarterback salary cap or a money incentive for American quarterbacks to come up here and develop. You have rival leagues now like the XFL and the USFL, which quarterbacks feel like they can go to and potentially jump to the NFL quicker than the CFL. So there needs to be a bigger monetary upside to coming to Canada. And outside that, I think people in the league need to seriously consider U sports quarterbacks and have more programs in the off season for those quarterbacks to actually get reps with the pro coaches because this CFL internship thing that they do in training camps is all fine, well, and great, but the teams are in win mode at that point, and those guys really aren't getting the reps that they need to develop. So I think there could be something that could be done in the offseason here to help develop Canadian passers, and then the money aspect would bring the Americans up. Ottawa Red Blacks head coach Bob Dice revealed that star kick returner Devontae Dedman will miss the rest of the season due to a shoulder injury. Is that a major loss for the team? It is to an extent, but I will say, before this injury, if you'd asked me to list my top three or even top five returners in the CFL, I'm not sure Deadman would have cracked the list. 2021 was a long time ago. He did not look like the same player he was. Hopefully he does when he comes back from this injury. Brandon Banks says he's open to a return with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Do you think we'll see him back on the field anytime soon? Oh, the last thing the Ticats need right now is a 35-year-old washed-up receiver who likes to throw hissy fits <laughs> on the sideline. You can tolerate Banks back in the day because he was one of the most electric players in the league, perhaps the most electric player in the league. That's not the case anymore. They don't need him right now. Longtime Alouette's fullback, Deron Diedrich, passed away of cancer at the age of 44. 
How will you remember him? Some people will say Diedrich was the OG in terms of running backs coming out of the GTA and getting legitimate NCAA looks. He was an absolute beast at the University of Nebraska as a running back for the Cornhusters on a team that was successful through his years there. So lots of respect for Diedrich coming out and may he rest in peace. The Winnipeg Blue Bombers are adding kicker Justin Medlock to the team's Hall of Fame. I know he's a worthy selection, Hodge, but isn't this very quick to happen? It is very quick to happen, but I will say, I think this illustrates just how high in esteem the Winnipeg Blue Bombers hold Justin Medlock. I mean, this guy is, I think he's 41. Like, he he played for the team just four years ago. And, and yes, Bring him back to kick guys. now. Yeah, well, and honestly, that was part of my sneaking suspicion was maybe they're hoping that he'll come to do the Hall of Fame dinner and then just stick around for a little bit with all due respect to Sergio Castillo, who's been very good so far this season. Because Bedlock is probably still better than most, if not all the kickers in the CFL right now. The man is a machine. On that note, we thank you as always for listening to the Three Donation Podcast. We'll see you again next week for our next episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.